We are on our sixth part of our series on the kingdom of God, and we've been talking about the concepts of the kingdom in a bunch of different avenues, and today I want to actually just deal with one truth, but I'm going to hit it a bunch of different ways, because if this truth can crystallize in your heart and your mind, it will change the way you think about the way you live day in and day out. And, and so I want to talk about this concept of habitation, the habitation of the presence of God, and not just his presence, but actually his desire to dwell among his people. And the Bible is absolutely clear from Genesis through Revelation that this is a key motive in the heart of God. God is so deeply desirous to dwell with us, not just sort of in the mystical presence sense, but actually in the, in the proximal way, in proximity, in physical proximity, God wants to dwell with his people. And, and the reason why this is an important emphasis, it's because if we think that God wants to sort of you know, stay in his palace, in his throne room, and keep us at a distance, and we only sort of sense his presence in a, in a light way or in a rich way, but he doesn't actually want physical, you know, uh, proximity with us, we, we kind of tend to think of ourselves as second-class citizens or at a distance from the Lord. But I'm going to show you today from the scripture over and over and over and over how God was always wanting to dwell physically with his people. And when you get that, see, what happens is you start understanding the heart of God and then you understand the heart of the kingdom, right? The character of the king determines the character of the kingdom. So we've got to go deeply into his heart to understand even what is this kingdom that we're a part of. And, and so I think sometimes we, we kind of think of ourselves as, you know, God's, he's up there and we're down here. And if, if, like, I mean, when I first got saved, I used to think if I'll just sort of not do anything wrong and, and just be a, like a, a good kid and just like not mess up, then I won't, I won't cause God any problems and he won't have to mess with me and, and he'll like me, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm the good kid in the class. And, and some of you did your whole life in school like that. You worked really hard and tried to be perfect and so that the, the teacher would never, you know, uh, have to call you out for anything negative. And, and, and that was your expression and you thought of, if I live this way, then, then I'm, you know, I'll be good, and it'll be right with me and, and the teacher. Some of you weren't that way. Some of you were the crazy loud one, but the, some of you were the quiet one in the corner, and, um, and you, it actually, so often, it translates into our way that we operate with God, and I want to tell you, God doesn't want to leave you alone. God wants to be personal. He, he wants to be personal personal, intimate, close, and actually physically close with his people. And, and so I want to get into this from the scripture today. And, and, and let's, just, let's just give a, a few verses, and I'm going to give us a, a variety of verses today, but let's just give a few verses to sort of set an overview, and then I'm going to walk through uh, circumstance after circumstance after circumstance in the scripture to show how this has been God's heart all along. So Exodus 29 is probably one of the first explicit statements in scripture about God's desire to dwell with his people. And he just simply says this, I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. Leviticus 26 verse 12 says, I will walk among you and be your God. You shall be my people. 
And I just think about this infinite God of beauty, wonder, glory, majesty. He's, I mean, he's highly exalted in every possible way. And his statement to his people is, I want to be with you in your midst. What king, what potentate, what president says, I don't want to live in my ivory palace. I want to live in and among you. Who, who is that? Well, it's our God. That, that's what he's like. This is what's in his heart. He, he doesn't want to keep us at a distance. He wants to be with us. And, and, and then we see this in the incarnation. In, in Matthew 1, uh, verse 23, it's quoting the Old Testament. Behold, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And this is the very reality of the Son of God and the very heartbeat of the the Father that he would be with us. Now, beloved, I know that's something you sort of, yeah, I get it, like God wants to be with us. No, 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 I don't think we get this. Because when we understand that this is what's in his heart, you will never believe that God has left you alone. You'll never believe that he's overlooked you and chosen someone else and left you out. See, we don't realize that we have these strongholds in our minds and we put these things on God that are not true of him. But if we can get foundational truths about how he operates, it changes the way that you actually perceive your life day in and day out. If you can land the point that God has always wanted to be with you, his people, he's always wanted to be with you, and that's where things are going, you'll never think you were the one that was ignored. And so often the people of God, they kind of live that way, just thinking God just left them out. They didn't, you know, God didn't bless me, he blessed them. And, and God didn't, he didn't minister to me, he ministered to them. And, and, and here's the thing, that's not true of God. What's true of him is he wants you and he wants to be with you, even in a physical, a, a physical way in proximity. And so this has always been his heart and his motive. All right, now let's start with the garden. Let's start with Adam and Eve in the garden. And we know the story. God creates man, pulls from his uh, side a rib and creates woman. And he places them in a place of perfection. And it's a a place of absolute paradise. I, I want you to also sort of tweak the way you think about the garden. So often people think Adam and Eve had a garden, and they picture a picket fence and a row of cabbages, a row of carrots, cucumbers, and like four or five other vegetables and a few flowers, and there is Farmer Adam with his pitchfork and Eve who's got the green thumb. And I just want to tell you that is completely inferior to the truth of what they were living in. In fact, if you study it out at all, you find out that the garden was much more of a sanctuary than it was a place of, with rows of cabbages and carrots. In fact, if you will think about, if you've ever been to a place like maybe, uh, if you've ever been to the Biltmore Estates in North Carolina, it has these giant gardens that you can walk, I mean, acres and acres of gardens and there's structure and trees and there's, there's you know, physical outcroppings and buildings and pathways and beauty and floral and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it's just, it's expansive. I want to propose to you that the Garden of Eden was far more like that than it was, you know, Farmer Adam with a few rows of carrots and cabbages. And so Genesis 3, we pick up the story, and Adam and Eve have sinned. Um, 
you know, Eve has listened to the serpent. She's taken a bite of the tree, uh, a fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She's given it to her husband, Adam, with her. So often we think Adam was off doing something, and he was actually right there. And, um, and so now, here they are, and they, they've experienced sin in all the ripple effects for the very first time. In verse 8, we pick up the story. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to, to Adam and said to him, where are you? Here's the thing. God knew exactly where Adam was. The only one in this equation that didn't know where Adam was was Adam. Because here's what happened. He had been existing in perfect intimacy without any veils between him and God. The man was so free, literally he didn't have any clothes on and he didn't know it. He was so alive in heart, there was no shame on him or his wife. They didn't know fear. They didn't know anger. They didn't know hatred. They didn't know any of these emotions that we, are, we, we you know, make so normal in the human state. Because and, and, all of those things come from the status of sin. And so in one moment, Adam takes a bite of that uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and life drains completely out of him as darkness fills his soul. And what was warm and life-giving and what was, what was an amazing, ex exhilarating experience of no veils and perfection was now completely corrupted and all the ripple effects of sin take over his spirit and his soul and shame and fear and pain and anger and hatred and all these accusations, they all flood and fill his mind. And now he's looking at Eve and she's looking at him and they've got to dress themselves. This isn't right. Something's wrong here. And they're staring at each other and obviously this, there's all these things going on between them now. Probably there's accusation and, and, and there's this, this you know, difficulty and all, bang, all of a sudden they hear, they hear the steps, the footsteps of the eternal God. Pause the narrative. It seems to state that this would have been normal, that God walking around in the garden was a thing. And just, let's just dial into that for a moment. Okay, can you imagine you walk out in your backyard and here comes God walking through. <laughs> Hi, eternal father. Beautiful day, isn't it? Yes, son, it is. Glory, aren't I? You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> God's walking through the garden and it's normal. Like this was the existence, and this is the point I want to draw you into. God was walking in the garden, not because anybody was making him, because he wanted to be there with his people. You get it. And so the way this appears firstly in Scripture with God's desire to be with his people, that gives us a lot of clarity to God's desire throughout the rest of the story. It's, you know, the law of first appearance in the Bible, it usually tells us how things are set up. And the point is, God shows up in the garden with his people as a normative way to do life because this is what God wants. And beloved, that's what we have to land. 
that God wants to be with his people in every age, in this age, in the ages past and in the ages to come. He wants to be with us, period. He wants to manifest in our presence in a very, very rich and real way so that we can be in awe of the wonder of him. It's the glory of God for him to express himself and for us to respond to his expression. And so what God wants to do is glorify himself in our midst where we perceive him and then we respond to that perception of glory by loving him back. And this is the glory of God, that God would manifest himself and that people would respond to that glory. And then when we respond to the manifestation of him, we tell others about the beauty and the wonder of him, and then they respond to the manifestation of him, and this is the glory of God. And every day of your life, this is what God's after. I often counsel 20-year-olds, and they go, what does God want from me? What does God want from me? Because, you know, you're 20, like, you, you're, you think, like, it's for all the marbles right then. I have to know everything right now. And what does God want for my life? I go, I know exactly what he wants. They go, you do? I go, I know exactly what he wants. They go, no, tell me. I go, God wants, and they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I go, to be with you. And they go, what do you mean? <laughs> No, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Yeah, what you're supposed to do is be loved. You're the beloved. He wants to be with you and love you. And from that place of this transaction of love between you and God, that's the glory of God, that your life would flow out of that transaction. What you actually do doesn't matter as much as that you're loved by God and you love him back and you express that love to others. All the other details will work out if you get that one right. So... Back to where are you? Can you imagine? He eats it. It's not an apple. Fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. He eats it and darkness, pain, fear, anguish, anxiety, shame, accusation. It all fills him. And then he hears God walking. And where are you, Adam? Where are you? And Adam, the only thing Adam knows at that point is, I'm lost. I don't know where I am. I don't know. What I knew is real and what is real now is a completely different existence. I do not know where I am. I'm lost. And that's what God wanted to communicate to Adam in that moment. It wasn't that he wanted to say, you're so bad, you did so much wrong, you're gonna be expelled from, no, it's you don't know where you are because you've stepped out of my presence. And see, it's in the place of God's presence that we understand reality. It's in the place of his manifestation with us that we actually perceive reality. The further you get from the presence of God, the further you are from reality. In him we live and move and have our being. Am I making sense? Further you are from that, the further you are from reality. Where are you, Adam? I'm lost. From that moment, God is on a search and rescue mission with humanity. From that very moment, 
God begins to go through all the work within humanity so that he can come and dwell in the midst of us again, so that he can be with us without veils again. And so then we begin to see his process with the nation of Israel and what he does with Moses and what he does with David and what he does with Solomon. And all of a sudden, the storyline begins to make sense that God was always about getting back to being in the midst of his people. Okay? So let's go from now Genesis, let's go to Exodus. And we remember the story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's Israel, Israel goes into captivity in Egypt, Moses, burning bush, let my people go, Pharaoh, Red Sea, and they go to a place called Sinai. Wow, that was fast, wasn't it? They could, they could have done the whole movie like boom, boom, boom. And so they're at Sinai, and it's shocking what happens at Sinai, and we read it, and it's exciting, but there's so much more going on here at Sinai. So the Lord, in Exodus 19, he tells Moses, he says, listen, Moses, I'm getting ready to come down. I'm going to come down on the mountain. In three days, I am going to manifest myself on the mountain. I want you and all the people to sanctify yourselves. I want you to clean everything you've got, clean your clothes. He goes, I want you to completely set yourselves apart. He goes, tell the husbands and wives, don't even come together for three days because I am about to step down on the mountain. I'm like, can you, I mean, can you imagine what's going on at that moment in Moses? Like, God is going to come down and the whole nation has to get ready. I mean, you've probably been excited about like times when you felt like God was going to move, but this is a big one. It's like the biggest one. And what happens is the morning of the third day, heaven manifests on top of Sinai. Heaven manifests. And God comes down on the mountain. Let's pick the story up. Exodus 19, verse 17 and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Man, if I could do something as a spiritual leader, it would to bring the people to meet with God. That's what I want to do. If you could have that on your like, life bio, what did he do? He brought the people to meet with God. That would be like a total win. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. The whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And sometimes when I read about Moses, I just think, Moses, what did you eat for breakfast that day that you were doing all that stuff that you were doing? The top of the mountain is exploding with the glory of God. Fire is on the mountain. A cloud is on the mountain. An earthquake is happening on the mountain. Thunder is happening on the mountain. Lightning is happening on the mountain. This isn't your regular thunderstorm and lightning storm, though. This isn't heat lightning in the summer kind of lightning. This is lightning coming out of the being of God lightning on the top of the mountain. The whole thing is smoking because glory has landed on the mountain. The thing is on fire, not with natural fire, with the glory of God fire. 
The whole thing is shaking. Moses gets the nation. Come on, guys, we're going to go meet God. It's about 2.2 million people. They walk out to the mountain, and a trumpet starts blasting. The Bible doesn't tell us who's blowing the trumpet, but it's and it's getting louder and louder and longer and longer. And this whole scene, Steven Spielberg would be ashamed. And the trumpet's blasting. And I just look at Moses and it says, when the trumpet got louder and louder and longer and longer, Moses spoke. At that moment, I'm going, ah. Moses is going, um, excuse me. And he speaks, God, I'm here, or whatever he says. And the father answers him, yes, or whatever he says. I just, this moment is just, just astounding. The writer of Hebrews says, we haven't come to a mountain that's shaking and smoking and fire, but we, we have come to the heavenly Zion, the, the, first, the church of the firstborn, to, to the assembly of angels and saints gathered in procession. See, we don't come to this, this you know, crazy, scary volcano of God. We come to this place where God has welcomed all the redeemed from all the ages, and you and I are accepted in that number, accepted in the beloved. Come on. But here's what's going on. God comes down, Moses speaks, God speaks, and then God speaks again in Exodus 20. God speaks all the Ten Commandments in the hearing of the people. They actually hear the voice of the Lord speaking the Ten Commandments. And after the Lord thunders the Ten Commandments from the mountain, all the people say to Moses, Moses, you go in, you be the priest, we will step back, which is one of the most sad thoughts in all of Scripture, because at the beginning of chapter 19, God said, you shall all be a kingdom of priests to me. You shall all be welcomed into my presence. You shall all interface with me and hear my voice. And instead they said, no, we can't hear you. Let Moses do it for us. And the people put the veil in place. God was trying to come down, and the people didn't want it. So Moses goes up in 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, and it says he didn't eat or drink, supernatural fast. You can't be sustained like that. And it's when he's 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, the Lord gives him the plans for the tabernacle, the Lord gives him the Ten Commandments, and then he hears the sound in the camp, and Joshua is with him, and Joshua says, oh, it's the sound of, of war, it's the sound of you know, something special, and the, and the Lord says, no, 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 the people have defiled themselves, and, and, and Moses says, no, this is a bad sound, it's not a good sound, Joshua, and they go get down, and the people are worshiping a calf. Here's what's crazy. They're worshiping a calf while the glory is still on the mountain. The glory was on the mountain for 40 days. They were making the, the calf with heaven on the top of the mountain. Oh, beloved. This ends up being the story throughout scripture. God is right there in the midst, and the people don't want him, they want their own ways. And Aaron, I just gotta give the side note because the story with Aaron is so crazy. When Moses comes down, and here's Aaron, he's crafted this golden calf, and Moses goes, what are you doing, Aaron? And, and what Aaron had done is the people said, hey, Moses is gone. We needed something to worship. We need you to make us a God that, that took us out of Egypt. And Aaron goes, okay, give me all your gold, and I'll craft it, and let's throw it in the fire, and then I'll make a, a calf out of it. And then Moses goes, what are you doing, Aaron? And Aaron goes, the people, they threw all their gold in a fire, and this calf jumped out. It's what he says. <laughs> it gives you a little insight into the inner workings of Moses and Aaron's childhood as they grew up. 
Aaron probably spinning tall tales, Moses having to call him to account. And so Moses grinds the calf to dust, puts it in the water, makes everybody drink it, and says, it's no God. And then the Lord says, I'll go, I'll let my angel go with you. Moses goes, no, 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 if you don't go with us, I can't go. And then he says, okay, Moses, come back up. Moses goes, show me your glory. He goes, okay, come back up the mountain. And then the Lord gives him the Ten Commandments again, and we know the story. Moses' face shines like a spotlight. All right, so, but it's in the Sinai encounter when God came down and dwelt on the mountain that the Lord then gives Moses the plans for the tabernacle. Now, while the children of Israel were in uh, the, the wilderness and, and getting ready to go in the promised land, and for the next several hundred years, the worship place for the people of God was Moses' tabernacle. And what's interesting is that when Moses was on top of the mountain, the Lord gave him plans for the tabernacle, and the reason why is because God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. And so he actually gives Moses the plans, and the writer of Hebrews tells us that the plans for the tabernacle were the exact replica of the heavenly throne room. So interesting. So God goes, I want you to make the space exactly like the space that I'm currently dwelling in, because I want to dwell in that space too. So fantastic. So they make the tabernacle, and, and the Lord had said to Moses, he says in Exodus 25, he says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I love it. I may dwell among them. And so then we get the story of when they dedicate the tabernacle. It's in Leviticus 9, 23. I'll just read it. It says, and Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and, and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. I love that because oftentimes people go, oh, the glory of the Lord was there and we just worshiped and praised and danced and gathered. And I go, no, no, no. If the glory of the Lord comes, you will scream and fall flat. <laughs> I mean, 2.2 million people, ah, because God was in the midst. And why the fire? Why the smoke? Because when God comes down, it's fire and it's smoke. And why, why at, the, at the inauguration of the tabernacle? Because God was once again dwelling in the midst of his people. What's interesting is this. Remember, God invited everybody in to be a kingdom of priests, but the people said no. And so then the Lord picks the Levites and says, now let the Levites surround the tabernacle. My glory will dwell in the midst and they will be a buffer between me and the people so that the people don't come under the wrath of God. At least these people will be a priesthood to me. He wanted the whole nation, but the nation said no. So that's the sanctuary of the tabernacle, and they used that for several hundred years, and then we get to David. And what's happened, but when David comes on the scene is uh, the Ark of the Covenant, where the glory of the Lord was dwelling on top of, it had been stolen from Israel. And so the first thing that David does is he goes and gets the Ark, and he brings the Ark back to Israel. So when David becomes king, the very first thing he does is he goes and gets the Ark and brings it back to Israel, and he sets up a tent. Now what's interesting is he's got Moses' tabernacle where the sacrificial system is going, and he's got this tent that he puts the Ark of the Covenant in. But what David does with the, with the, the tent, David's tabernacle, is he sets up worship and prayer in front of the Ark. It's the first time that we have this expression of sacrifice that's not animal sacrifices, it's worship sacrifice. David's the first one that said, I will bring a sacrifice of praise. 
And so what happens is during the center of David's kingdom, he has this, this night and day worship and prayer before the ark in the tabernacle. And this is the centerpiece of David's kingdom. And what's going on there is it's shocking. God is dwelling in the midst of the people in the place of worship and prayer. Kind of like the throne room. 24-7 in heaven where God dwells, 24-7 on earth at the center of the kingdom. And this is the expression of David's tabernacle. And it's from there that David says this. He says, you know what? I'm in, I'm in a palace. God's in a tabernacle. God needs to be in a palace. I'll build him a temple. And the prophet tells David, says, hey, you're a man of war. You can't build a temple for the Lord, but your son will do it. And so David had this thing burning in his heart. I'll just read this verse from Psalm 132. But it's like, the, it's like the central heartbeat of David. And he says, surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until what? I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Here's David, a man after God's own heart. And the main thing he's after for his whole life is a place where God can dwell. And beloved, why is that burning in David's heart? Because it's burning in God's heart. And we see it over and over and over in the garden, in the tabernacle, in David's tabernacle, and then in the temple. And Solomon gets the plans from David, and Solomon builds the temple. And in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and 7, we have the dedication of the temple. Do you remember what happens when they dedicate the temple? Fire and smoke fall again. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And here's my point. When you build God a place to dwell, he attends that place with glory. And that's been his desire from day one, beloved that he would have a place to dwell on the earth among his people. Everybody wants to die and go to heaven, and I'm telling you what God wants to do is bring heaven to earth. You see it all the way through the scripture. He's always bringing heaven to earth, bringing heaven to earth, dwelling in glory on the earth. He didn't create the earth so that he would one day just throw it away. He created the earth because he wants to inhabit this place with his glory. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Come on. That's what this is. That's what we're into. We're into a kingdom in which God wants to manifest himself across the entire globe. That's what we're into. Kingdom habitation, that's what we're talking about. This desire in the heart of God to dwell among his people. So now we fast forward. Let's just fast forward now to Jesus. And we already read the passage that his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And I just think it's just so fantastic. I mean, can, can you imagine? I mean, we're, we're getting ready to get to that time of year right now. We're going to celebrate, you know, the holidays, celebrate Christmas and and so often, you know, it just gets so blown out of proportion on the wrong stuff, but let's just think about the right stuff for a minute. God has an angel tap a little teenage girl on the shoulder and say, hey, excuse me, <laughs> you're gonna have a baby. She goes, I, I, I can't have a baby. I've, I've never been with a man. And he goes, the angel says, no, no, no. The power of the most high will overshadow you. 
and what will be what will be born in you will be God. It will be God on the inside of you. You will be with child by the Holy Spirit. And he will be, he will be the one that will sit on the throne of David. That's what, that's what the angel tells, tells Mary. Can you imagine, 13 years old? I don't know if you got any 13-year-olds in your home. Can you imagine, like, I, you know, I've got some teenagers in my house. <laughs> they had an angel, and they're trying to process that. I mean, I got dudes, so I don't know how well they process it. But a, a, a female <laughs> processing that thing emotionally and deeply, like, considering. And here we go. The angel shows up, and God's going to be in you, and you're going to birth God. I mean, not only is that the craziest quiet time you've ever had, that's the craziest prophecy you've ever heard. And she pondered these things in her heart. And she gives birth to Jesus. And God is in a human body. I just think about it. God was in that little girl's belly, and then God was delivered a baby, and then God was God was a baby, and he was a child, and he was toddling, and then he was running, and then he was a tween. And by the time he was a teenager, he was shutting the mouths of the teachers in Israel. And then he was 15 and 17, and God God was 20, and God was 21, and he was working as a carpenter, and nobody knew him. God was living on the planet, and nobody knew it. The creator was on the planet, and nobody knew it. And he was walking back and forth to the well and getting the water, and he was going in and out of the shop, and he was hammering things and making things. And there were people, think about this, whose bench was made by God. Went to Joseph's shop. Yeah, that, that, that little kid, Jesus, he's really got a lot on the ball. Put together this bench and table for us, honey. It's going to be nice. We're going to use that. Look, he signed his name under there, but he signed, I am. It's strange. <laughs> right? And so then he shows up, and he's doing miracle signs and wonders. The deaf are hearing, the, the blind are seeing, and the, the lame are leaping. I mean, all the prophecies of Messiah have come true in this man, Jesus, and he's trying to explain it to the religious leaders. He goes, guys, I'm God. I'm, I'm here. It, it, I'm here. I'm here. It, it's what I've been wanting to do all along. I wanted to be with you, my people. And John 10, he just says it to him. Finally, he just says it. The Jewish leaders are all staring at him sideways like he's got a demon. And he goes, guys, I and my father, we're one. And then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them and said, many good works have I shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. And I can almost just hear the divine mind just going, guys, I've always wanted to dwell with you, and here I am. And I knew it already, but you don't want me. There he is. There's God again dwelling with his people. And they don't want him. They want to kill him. I mean, Israel had Yahweh in the midst. And they say no. 
And, and you know, it's easy for us to judge them and go, man, well, man, if I had seen people raised from the dead, I would have been all in. Well, no, because the disciples weren't even all in. The disciples didn't even get it. And you just get John 14, and, and here's, here's Jesus at the end of his life, and he's pouring out his heart, and he's giving all the details. It's like the most important stuff. And, and Philip, finally, he just goes, he goes, all right, listen, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus just, I mean, Jesus is so, well, he's perfect. I mean, he's amazing. He goes, have I been so long with you, and yet you haven't known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Here he is, God in the midst. Not only do the religious leaders don't get him, his own disciples don't get him. And it's because we've missed the heart of God. God's desire has always been to dwell among us. And even when he's dwelling among us in the incarnation, we're completely missing it. We're completely not seeing who he is and what's burning in his heart. So Jesus crucified and then resurrected. And as we talked about last week, the veil of the temple was rent and the Holy Spirit is out of the Holy of Holies. And instead of now God dwelling in a physical tabernacle, we're in this in-between stage where the Holy Spirit is now dwelling in a people. Jesus at the right hand in the heavenly throne room with the Holy Spirit poured out and all those that say yes to Jesus have God on the inside. And what's interesting is that makes us alive, but we're all individual temples and we're all individual stones and we are all being built together as a dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And beloved, this is the portion for the people of God. This is what the church is supposed to be, a dwelling place for God. Why? Because that's what God has always wanted, was to dwell among his people. And sometimes I just look at it and I think, what are we doing? What are we, what are we doing? What have we made it about? And we make it so much more about us than about him. And I'm just going to tell you something. If we ever want to go from visitation to habitation, the order of things has to change. It's got to quit being about man, and it's got to start being about God. We've got to get built together to hold the, to be the dwelling place, to hold the glory of God. Am I making any sense this morning? And this is, this is our portion, that we would be a people that have the glory of God in our midst. Oh, man, that our eyes would see it on this side. David said, I would have fainted unless I believed I'd see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And sometimes I look at the promises of Scripture and I go, God, it's not okay with me that I get these promises on the other side. I want to see your glory now. I want to see the manifestations now. I want to see your habitation in our midst now. Jesus answered and he said to his disciples, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. See, we're in this in-between stage where heaven has received Jesus and at the time of the restoration of all things when Jesus Christ will return. Until that time, we're the temple. We're the dwelling place. 
Oh, that the church would just do this for real. That we would truly be the dwelling place for God. That when we come together, that something of a supernatural reality would take place. That it wouldn't just be a few nice songs and an anointed message, but there would be glory in the midst. The lame would leap, the blind would see, the deaf would hear. The addicted would be set free. The demonized would be delivered. Those with mental issues would be completely set free. We need glory in the midst. It's what I preached on last week, that we would be one because in Jesus, the whole building is being fitted together and it grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God and spirit. This is our portion in this age. But here's the thing, heaven is receiving Jesus until the times of the restoration of all things. The Lord Jesus is going to return. He's not just sort of coming back because it's fun for him to come back. He's coming back, why? Because he wants to dwell in the midst of his people. He wants to be among his people. And so the scripture is really, really clear where he's going to come back to. It's so super clear that multiple times it explains he's coming back and he's going to take up residency in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us this. Not the prophecy teacher on TV or the whatever. The Bible actually says it. Let me give you one clear passage. This couldn't be any clearer. Zechariah 8, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor, I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. It's talking about physical, literal Jerusalem. I have to make this super clear because so oftentimes it's in like cartoonish in our minds. Jesus Christ is coming back to this planet and he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And Zion, the mountain there in the middle of Jerusalem, where the temple mount is, that will be called the mountain of the Lord. Jesus will dwell there in the midst. Isaiah 2 says this, the law will go forth from Zion, and he, Jesus, will teach us his ways. Can you imagine the teaching meetings that we're going to go to in the age to come when Jesus Christ, the word of God, is breaking out for us, the word of God? Look, I don't know what you got into when you thought you were getting into Jesus or getting saved or whatever, but you joined a kingdom with a king who is coming. He is coming. And he'll rule and reign forever. And the scriptures are clear of it. And so this is my my great desire, is that we would live in light of the truths of the kingdom, and we would understand the very heart of God, that he wants to dwell in the midst of his people, not in some ethereal, sort of just mystical, sort of feel the presence of God way, but in a physical, tangible, literal way. And we are in this moment right now where we're in between this this tension place of when he was dwelling in glory and, and then he's going to return. But we have the capacity to be built together as this dwelling of glory. And oh, beloved, 
Let us lean in and be that dwelling place for God in the spirit. I just kind of think about it, you know, Moses, what he experienced, and Paul, like we talked about last week, said that that was no glory. But Moses, I mean, fire falls on the mountain for 40 days. The place is shaking and lightning and thundering, right? And the whole place, everybody sees the glory of God. What if that fell on Atlanta? What if the church actually got built together as a dwelling place for God and the Spirit and glory filled the city? Oh, see, you got to get your faith up because he can do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or think. And I can think some crazy stuff, and he goes, oh, I can outkick that coverage anytime I want. And so listen, he can come in glory right now. What if glory hit every single pulpit in our county right now? See, when you come to church, I don't know what you come thinking about. I come thinking about, I want his glory here because I don't want to do just another I mean I like y'all a lot I love you but I don't want to do just another meeting we've done a lot of me I've done a lot of church meetings I'm not even 50 yet and we've done a ton of church meetings on this side I'm like I hope the meetings in heaven are all full of glory because I've done a ton where we slug through without much glory I want glory now does that make sense I mean I'm thankful for the president don't take me as being ungrateful here on Thanksgiving week (laughs) I'm thankful. But I know there's so much more. See, when these trees get in you, you get a little bit of a wreck. And it can't just be tidy for us, you know? Everybody wants a tidy God that fits in a box. Let me tell you something. He's out of the box. He wants the glory even in the streets. When I realize what's available and what we've seen, oh, I go, God, don't let me live my life every day wondering what we could have had or what could there be. Oh God, let us experience it now. Let us see the glory in our midst. Last thought. Jesus Christ is coming to dwell in the age to come. But Ephesians 2 is really clear. There's ages to come. It's really interesting. God wants to show us the riches of his kindness and goodness for ages to come. That's what the scripture says in Ephesians 2. See, we've got this little paradigm. We die and we go to heaven, turn into fat babies, floating on clouds, wearing togas, playing a harp. Don't get your theology from the cartoon or from what's that? It's a wonderful life. Get your wings. Ding. You know, that's not theology. That's entertainment. What is true is that Jesus Christ is coming. The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters come to the sea. And there's an, even another age after this next age. So we have an age where Jesus Christ rules and reigns on the earth, dwells in Jerusalem, teaches us his, way from, his ways from Zion. And then the age after that, the scriptures are a shock. It teaches that the Father is the one who was, who is, and who is to. He's restoring all things. Remember, he used to walk around on the planet with Adam. That's coming again, beloved. Let me show you the verse. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3. This is so tender. I love this. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He's bringing heaven to earth, beloved. The next age, Jesus is coming, and the age after that, there's the one who was and is and is to come. The Father is coming. He's going to dwell with us. And I don't know what eternity looks like, but we're going to love it. (laughs) We're going to absolutely love it. Because whatever Adam had that was forfeited, what we see here in Revelation 21 is the Father has completely won it all back for us. And not just for a singular person, but for an entire company, the bride of Jesus Christ. The Father wanted a family, the Son wanted a bride. And we get to be in on it if we're in on Jesus. This is the kingdom. And then he says this. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Everything that Adam lost is going to be fully recovered. All that darkness that filled him when he ate that fruit It's going to be completely lifted off the creation, and the Father will dwell with us again forever. Beloved, this is the story of the kingdom. This is the gospel. Hallelujah. Amen and amen and amen. Let's stand.